Clubhouse. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home. This is Caroline. Hey, Beth. Hi, Caroline. I'm so excited to talk today with our guest, one of my oldest friends, Monty Farber. Beth, Monty tells this story in this episode, but what do you remember from that Penn & Teller Get Killed project, which is where you actually met Monty? Both of us were working on location in Brigantine, New Jersey, right outside of Atlantic City. It was a really interesting project directed by the brilliant Arthur Penn, no relation to Penn himself. It was really an honor to be on a movie directed by Arthur Penn. The situation with set decorators and location managers is they really more so than any other department in a lot of ways work as collaborators because one's job is sort of dependent on another, especially when you're working on location. It's so important to have a good, strong location manager. And Monty has just the personality for making all these crazy locations happen. It was really interesting to watch how he works and subsequently what his job has become since he left the film business. You know, I, I you see his perceptiveness and his ability to work with people and negotiate things. And both of us found ourselves in some crazy situations on that job. We, we had a lot of laughs. <laughs> I, it, it must be so interesting for you to work with a location scout and have to figure out like what things you can manipulate and what what things you have to bring in. There must be a lot of coordination with that. Can you tell us about that at all? The two departments are really coordinated because in a lot of ways, even though the set decorating department is sort of the last line of defense, you know, when building a set and going through construction and scenic and then, you know, finally we get the set always close to the last minute for dressing. When you're going into a location, we very often will be the first line of defense in terms of establishing a relationship with a homeowner, you know, that can be pivotal to an entire shoot. When you're working in a location that you have to keep the homeowner happy, you know, maybe you're shooting there for a week or for three days or for a month. I mean, you have to have your department function in a way that's sort of walking on eggshells. It's very difficult to always adopt a homeowner style. You know, we always scout locations and we try to find things that work or at least have a few elements that work. But, you know, I'll tell you, I've been in circumstances where we literally walk into an apartment, strip the whole place clean, paint it, wallpaper it, change every single thing. Then you sort of wonder, well, why are we shooting here to begin with, you <laughs> right. know, that old everything. adage, we could 
could shoot this thing in a effing bathtub. <laughs> but um, it's a lot of coordination because location work is cheaper. It is totally schedule dependent, you know, actor availability and how long it will take us to dress a certain location. And sometimes it's really tied to the outside. On a film I did this past summer, we needed to see through the trees outside a figure. So we needed an apartment that like had a clear view to the back slider door. In a lot of ways, that was the only thing that was right about the location. Again, <laughs> we changed all the furniture. We wallpapered, we painted a total overhaul. And very much in TV, we usually work on a schedule where, say, we're on an eight-day shooting schedule, maybe five days in and three days out. Or it could be a week where we're five days out on location and three days in. So there's a lot of work coordinating these locations, prepping, shooting, and then wrapping. Most importantly, restoring them. You don't want to go into a location and damage anything. In addition, location managers and location assistants are responsible for my crew in terms of keeping them suitably caffeinated and watered craft service. So I always love a location manager like Monty was, who really appreciates his fellow crew members and takes care of them. Monty seems like such a great guy and, and a wonderful professional that you've worked with for so many years. I'm so glad we get a chance to talk to him. Yes, here is our interview with the great, magical Monty Farber. Over the years, we've had a lot of guests on decorating the set, but none with more fascinating and wide-ranging career as today's guest. A location manager, prolific author, noted astrologer, one-time bodyguard to Michael J. Fox. He's joining us today, you guys. This is Monty Farber. Monty, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. My God, when I hear my introduction, it's like I basically can't hold a job. <laughs> You're just a jack of all trades, right? A Monty of all trades, if you will. It's so true, but um, I work with Beth, and I'm I'm still recovering from that. Whoa, as we Back all in are. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the start of the beginning of you two. Well, it was on Penn and Teller Get Killed, but I think we knew each other before that through Barry Shapiro, right? Right, a commercial producer and one of your college buddies. Well, that's the strange thing. Yeah, Barry is the only person who knew Amy, my wife of almost 50 years, before I knew her. And he knew me because he was a waiter at a restaurant. And thank God I tipped him well, because when he was in a position to hire me and get me out of being a PA and get me into being a location scout, he hired me. And, you know, it's really interesting because we're talking a little bit about all the varied careers that you've had. Barry was a commercial producer who actually gave me my first union work. Later on in his life, he started painting again, and I've often used his artwork on sets. So it's like full circle with all of us. That's amazing. And, and he's a good artist. He used to have a company called No Hands Productions, spelled N-O-H, like the no plays out of Japan. He went to Pratt, and that's where he knew Amy, and he worked at a restaurant called Joe's Place. 
and I was loading trucks and making actually a lot of money doing so for a company called Ohm Acoustics that made these amazing hi-fi speakers as their traffic manager. And I would go to this restaurant and me and Barry got to be friends. Uh, and I'm so glad because it led... It led to all of this. It led, yeah. And it led to meeting you and working on the worst movie ever made, Penn and Teller Get Killed. But with the best director of all times, Arthur, Arthur Penn. Penn. But when I worked with him, I found out how hard it is to sell him a script because he had a few scripts he couldn't sell, and he won the Academy Award for Bonnie and Clyde. Well, we were on location in Brigantine, New Jersey, for yeah. this movie. We um, shot a lot in Atlantic City on the boardwalk, and we all had condos on the beach in yes. Atlantic City. So, and not only was it an awesome film to be on location for, but each crew member's personal living situation was quite fancy. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and in those days, we really were like a family. I remember we had a weekly newsletter. <laughs> that uh, came out and pretty much crucified each individual crew member. It was just like a, a really close family situation. And pretty much we laughed the whole time. Not so much about Penn and Teller, but we all, uh, <laughs> we had a great time. Um, in Monty, in those days, you really were at a disadvantage in a way like a set decorator with no real tools except your shining personality to uh, go <laughs> and meet with people and secure locations. What You know, there's, we'll talk a little bit about the differences now in this post-computer, Google Earth, all kinds of stuff, homeowners being so savvy. But tell us a little bit about, about the good old days. Well, when I first started out, A, we did not have cell phones. We had beepers. Mm -hmm. So you could always say, oh, my God, the signal was so bad. I was in the South Bronx, and that's why I haven't answered you in three days. <laughs> and, you know, you could hide. And, and the location scout is basically the person who comes in and says, we're going to bring in a crew of 80 people and destroy your place, but we'll pay you for it after we're done. It was a lot of fun. It was like the Wild West being a location person. Their, their motto is like the commandos, first in and the last out, because you're the last out because everyone's complaining. And and so you have to sort of have your face to the, the homeowner or whatever as the crew is packing up to leave and go back to their, their lives. I work with Barry Sonnenfeld, great director. I used to actually read for him as an astrologer when he was a DP. And he said, Monty, how do you do locations? Everything when you're on location is a locations problem. Is that true, Barry? It's a, well, it's a set decorator and locations problem. Yeah. I thought it was your problem. No wonder I'd never had a problem at all. <laughs> it's such a sensitive topic because... Homeowners, even if they say, oh, I'm cool, you can do whatever you want, inevitably the one thing that you want to do, like move their sofa out, it, you know, always becomes the impossible task to negotiate. <laughs> you know, that's for the location manager to do, but I always find myself in the middle of their design dilemmas and I leverage my trade discount uh, for some happy homeowners. Well, that's great. Yeah, because uh, usually they're going to be getting paid really well. I was paying $40,000 a month to use the set for the money pit uh, because the production designer 
came down the five-acre driveway, got out of the car, looked at the place, said, this is the place. This is the only place I want. This is the only place I want, and I'm getting out of here. And she got back in her car, and the teamster drove her away. The owner of the house was standing right next to me when she said this, and he's like, well, I want $40,000 a month, and I want $40,000 in escrow. And I gave him $40,000 a month, and he kept the $40,000 in escrow. And I got to live in that house where the money pit was made. Oh, my God. How funny. How much does the homeowners like actually get involved with the shooting when you guys are there? Do Or do they, you just send them packing? Usually they're not there. And I was going to stay there. But he asked if he had could have permission to stay in the house. And what am I going to say? No. Because <laughs> the, the, there were two mansions on the property. One was for servants. And the other one was the one they lived in. And he said, well, the one we're moving into is owned by the Chrysler heiress. And she hasn't moved out yet. So can we stay with you? I said, sure. And I got to sort of be family with them, which was a lot of fun. Because if you you have to like people if you're a locations person. Because, sure do. <laughs> yeah, because it's hard. There, there they are. You know, we want we wanted to cut down a tree that they'd hung their Christmas lights on every Christmas for 100 years. And we didn't do it, thank God. And, and at some point, they ripped the siding off without asking <laughs> you know, the crew. Just oh, my God. Yeah, I, I would say that in the olden days, a crew was a bit more respectful. You know, nobody, like pushed the envelope. I mean, to tell you honestly, I've been on some cruise lately and this summer I was on a job in a, you know, historic building on oh, campus. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I went to work one day and the screen in this historic building, the window screen, was just cut Ooh. so cables could get put through. It was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's unprofessional. I, I worked on The Equalizer, which was an episodic television show. And because they had worked together for so long, this crew was like the Marines. And we were the only crew that was allowed to film in historic buildings in New York City because these guys were very respectful. Usually professionals would at least ask. Yeah, not just the... take it upon themselves. Homeowners used to not be involved when they didn't really realize that it was, a, you know, it's a business. I mean, it's become a way for homeowners to make money, to have their floors refinished, for have sure. their, you know, living room repainted. Many times we literally go in and we're just using the four walls. You know, we change everything. We put up wallpaper, window treatments. I try to always leave whatever I can. I always try to leave window treatments because those were custom made for uh, their size windows and so expensive. I think homeowners have become much more savvy. It's not only about knocking on doors. You know, you used to paper buildings. You know, we would put up signs, anyone interested in you know, using their place for a location. Now it's uh, it's sort of more routine. Well, yeah, because people are more more used to it. When I was doing locations, I would knock on a door and tell people what I was doing. They'd open the door to me, and I'd say, "Don't open the door. Call us. <laughs> call us and find out if I'm really who I say I am." You know, because everyone oh, the movies. Oh, that sounds like fun. I was like, and people are crazy. Monty's like safety first, people. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because as a locations person that really is job number one it's safe i believe it i believe it 
<laughs> not only do you have to have ceilings high enough to put the lights, but you got to do it in such a way that the crew and, and the cast is not going to die in the yeah. middle of it. When they're shooting, I would be standing there, especially if there's anything going on. Beth, you know about this, in mm -hmm. the street. When they're shooting in the street, oh, my God, that people will just step out like they're on a soundstage. And, and, you know, the fire department will come through and close you down. I'll tell you a great story. I was on a TV show. We were shooting a beautiful renovated brownstone in Harlem. The homeowner was a little in my face and a little hands-off. We were changing quite a number of rooms there. I just so happened to have a set dresser on my crew who was training to be in the fire department. For some lucky reason, when he was emptying the area that we were shooting in, he remembered taking a fire extinguisher and putting it down in the basement. Oh, no. So it was around Thanksgiving. Uh, the homeowner was, uh, you know, why I couldn't tell you, decided to bake an apple pie in the middle of our dressing. Uh, and, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, as and one it, does. As, as one does. And it wasn't for the crew. So, um, so she put this apple pie in this beautiful, new, really expensive stove, new kitchen, new backsplash. And I'm in the kitchen and I look over and there's smoke billowing oh, yeah. out of the stove. I mean, billowing. Well, she put the apple pie in the oven, and she didn't put anything underneath it. It started to cook and overflow, and it started a fire. I called the fire department. In the meantime, my set dresser ran downstairs, got the fire extinguisher. The fire department arrived, and they credited him with saving us and the entire brownstone. That's amazing. Yeah, she came home and she was like, oh, sorry. It seemed like not only did she choose to bake an apple pie, but it was her first day baking an apple pie. <laughs> she didn't even know what an apple pie might do if you oh, put it in the oven. <laughs> she didn't, didn't realize how lethal apple pie can actually That's right. be. She's you know, like, today's the day for some experimenting. <laughs> you know, one of the best oh things working on, working on the movies and being a locations person is that when, when actual filming starts, you're there, but you sort of got to stay out of the way, especially on union shoots, because if you touch anything, everyone will kill you. So I worked on, as I said, the equalizer with Edward Woodward, and I got to meet, believe it or not, Quentin Crisp. He was an actor on this particular show, and he's the, one of the bravest people I've ever met in my life, because when you read about Quentin Crisp, you realize what he did to help people uh, who have alternative lifestyles, because when he started out in England, it was against the law and you get thrown in jail. And he turned to me once about this location I'd found because it was the craziest, craziest. It must have been owned by a hoarder of toys. It wasn't dressed. When, when we shot in there, I guess the set decorator looked at it and said, I can't change this. This is perfect. <laughs> and, and Quentin Chris said to me, this place looks like it's deteriorating at the same rate in every area of the whole house. He just couldn't get over the location. So sometimes the location will inspire the uh, actors. It's true. It, it inspires the design. It inspires the director. I mean, sometimes we go into people's homes and they are character-filled and the right thing. Other times you tend to 
you know, as a set decorator, say, this is a little crazy. It, uh, it might be for convenience where the location is. I once had to dress an entire convenience store in a deli, and there was a convenience store a block away. So we went to the convenience store a block away and bought thousands and thousands of dollars of convenience store items and <laughs> brought them to the deli and undressed the deli and dressed in a convenience store. The things with locations that go on are sort of the reasons why, like when you're a logical person in the film business, they make you scratch your head like, oh yeah, why? Why are we doing this overnight crazy kind of stuff, you know, in a in a hotel or in a, a bank or in a location that, you know, you would think that you can never shoot in and never work in. They'll let you in from 5 p.m. to midnight on a Friday. There was one place in the Bronx, one courtroom that they would let you film in. When the movie um, Bonfire of the Vanities was filming, my former assistant was the locations person, and he was just so tortured that when I got to the set to help him, my friends on the on the crew said, what's the matter? Is there no more room for knives in his back? They got to bring in another person. They actually wrote a book about that, the making of that movie the devil's candy right mm -hmm. they were going crazy about the courtroom scene i said well there is a courtroom but the judges you know judges are judges they they're hard to work with and he'll let you use it but you got to use it and you got to be out by six in the morning oh no we'll find a place well they didn't i think they had to build it actually we did that at the start of the good wife the courtroom that we used was that friday night courtroom and you build yeah. your whole schedule around yeah. it and then we did build it yeah because if you mess with the judge you end up in the slammer <laughs> on bonfire at the vanities they they did a night shoot in the middle of the night shoot either the director or the or, or somebody else decided they don't want to use the lobby of the co-op that they've had for the last three months they want to use a, a new place and they want to shoot tomorrow so i got the call I asked them, have you scouted below 42nd Street? Because there's a part of Park Avenue that's Park Avenue South. And they had not. And I went to a co-op and I said, you know, we can talk all day. I have $10,000. It's yours if they can shoot here tonight. <laughs> He's like, okay. Monty, you seem like the most fun. Like, I like how you're like, you need $40,000? Fine. Just let's get this done. Like, I love this. Well, that's the great thing about the movie business. It's not your money, you, you know, because <laughs> it's like a money hurricane. Because I used to work on, on features. So, like the movie, The Money Pit, they had a memo that came out. Just because this is Amblin and Steven Spielberg doesn't mean you should spend too much money on coffee. I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> on coffee. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. They're yeah. like, get your act together, coffee budget. <laughs> right. Oh my god! And then, then Disney—they're—they're they're like uh, sending the production manager a note about how many Heinekens he's having. You know. So, so meanwhile, they're spending a zillion dollars on on everything. When it comes to locations, you do have a, a budget. People will think that you're going to negotiate with them. But Beth knows this better than I do. The scene is with Tom Hanks dragging his little dog through the hallway. You don't see the house, you know, the, the hallway at all. You don't see anything. You, they could have done it in someone's bathroom. I know. It's, it's staggering. $10,000. <laughs> it is funny. Well, that is the story of my career. You know, all the things <laughs> that we do that they say, you know, we could have shot this shit in a bathtub. Yes. I mean... <laughs> 
You're like, wah, wah. Did you enjoy the wallpaper, though? <laughs> yeah, really. That came from Italy. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> On the money pit, the reason that the, the uh, production designer, who had won the Academy Award, by the way, wanted this place was because the back patio had a low brick railing that we could build a complete facade onto. And I mean, a, a three-story facade that they used $80 roll paper back in the 80s. So this was expensive. I had to spend hundreds of, not hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars throwing away the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they had spent. I had dumpster after dumpster. I was begging people at the lumberyard, come get the doors and the windows and the this and the that. You know, uh, things yep. get, it's like the food. You, you wanted to donate, and we did. We donated the food, and sometimes we had a big party at my house on the weekend. Monty, what about your days as Michael J. Fox's bodyguard? I've been a locations person, so I got the job to work on one of the best movies I worked on, The Last Dragon. I don't know if anyone's seen The Last Dragon. It's a kung fu musical comedy from Motown, and it was pretty amazing. There was all these karate guys, and they all had big egos, and they would all almost fight. And I would go up to them, and I would say, you know, Grandmaster Suzuki said this, because, you know, I'm a spiritual New Age guy, sensitive spiritual New Age guy. And I would tell them all about the uh, the spiritual aspect, and they wouldn't fight. And the producer thought I was so tough that they wouldn't fight because I was so tough. But little did he know. Little did he know, exactly. And then the next movie was A Chorus Line. And Joe Caracciola, God rest his soul, who a wonderful man, he said, you know, you're so tough, whatever. Why don't you write? You're, you're in charge of security for the movie. It was five months and no one else was working. So he says, there's only one location. It's the Mark Hellinger Theater. But you can be in charge of security. I was like, sure, okay. And the only person I had to worry about were these two girls fighting. They were pretty tough, actually. And then out of that, because I guess nobody died, and I kept the Teamsters from killing each other, you know, he said, Michael J. Fox is coming, and he's he's work, doing Light of Day with Paul Schrader in Cincinnati, I think, and he can't get out of his hotel room. We don't want to hire a guy with a gun. We, we want somebody we know and trust. And I was like, I don't even know who he is. He, says, he said, it's $500 a day. I said, you got a deal. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked with him. I lived next door to him for seven days a week for three and a half months. We were, we were inseparable. It was a lot of fun, actually. So you guys must have run across a lot of weird things when you're on location. Please oh, yeah. tell me some of the wacky things that you found. <laughs> I don't know if mine are suitable for the air. Everything's suitable for the air. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was going with a... a with a, an actor who will remain nameless, and I was scouting in Atlantic City, and he wanted to come, and I didn't understand why, because I was scouting a abandoned peep show, one of those places where you drop the quarters or whatever in, and, and you can watch a VHS movie. So I go in there, all the TVs are gone, and there's a big stack of the sleeves from the VHS movies of, you know, things like Backside to the Future and, and movies <laughs> like that. And... I turn around to, to talk to the real estate agent and this actor goes up and he's gone through these sleeves, these VHS sleeves. It turned out I was with the Leonard Malton of porn and he, <laughs> he knew every actress and actor and what they had done. Oh, Chesty Canyon, she was in this, that, and the other thing. You know, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. And then the, he, he insisted on going with me. I was scouting a bar that had been there since the 1800s. And we're looking at this tiled trough. What it was is water could go around the entire bar in this about six inches deep water in a tiled trough at the bar. 
and no one could figure it out. And then finally, the real estate agent said, well, back in the day, it was men only, and you would drink at the bar. And if nature called, you just did your thing right there. Um, nature called on a particular number, not the other number, thank God. <laughs> And you would just do your thing, and, and you know the, the the Yellow River IP Daily would just take it away, and that's was real, and that was the weirdest thing I think I ever saw on a scout. It sounds very convenient. <laughs> Good lord, yeah, we just do that trough thing as well. <laughs> I, I think it's the very definition of convenience if you're a man. I feel like it's changed over to the red solo cup, though. So we, the trough is passe. <laughs> Who wants to clean the trough? No one. Throw your cup away, I say. Oh, my God. That sounds like <laughs> something out of Mel Brooks. Well, I get to see even more because, you know. What does to... that mean, Beth? Well, I, I, I don't <laughs> just see the location. I see what happens when you move the furniture. Oh, you sound like Ruder Hauer in, in Blade Runner. I've seen many things. Yes, I have seen many things I'd like to not remember. Sometimes people should clean under their sofa. I mean, I think, it's... I, yeah, I've heard that that's done. Yeah. I think everyone should generally. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it can be stunning and scary, the things that I found under people's mattresses. Um Ooh. Yeah, on um, a film I did this summer, a raccoon decided to run into the house while oh, no. we were dressing. And <laughs> you put my, like a little hat on him and he ran by. <laughs> it was, I, I, I have to say, I'm so happy that I wasn't there because I would have squealed like the good city girl that I am. But one They're of dangerous. my set dressers, yeah, one of my set dressers caught it by the neck and did the work for animal control. So, oh, really? yes, yeah, right oh, in the neck. That's so yeah, crazy. That was, I think you had Clyde Beatty working on you. <laughs> I think that's when you like throw a box on top of it. I don't think you grab it by the neck. <laughs> I've seen critters, porn, accoutrement, every, everybody's <laughs> private little stash. And, you know, it always surprised me that they knew that they were going to be using their home as a location. <laughs> they had, a, you know, they had a location agreement. Don't you think the night before, oh, I really should take that out from underneath my mattress. I mean, no one does it. You know, they just, they, they think. They think might need it. They might get a rental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that all the time at estate sales because, you know, those people don't know that people are going to come walking through their house because usually they've passed on. But I was at one this weekend and this guy had everything so well organized everywhere. And then you got to the garage and his Playboy was just oh. stacked so perfectly. They were like by the dates. And I yeah, did that exact vintage, same thing. Oh, know? no. I that's, But I did the same sound that yeah. Monty just did. Like I walked into the garage and I'm like, bird feeder, Christmas tree lights. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is all this? <laughs> I was like, sir, your organization skills have extended far past where I thought they would. Yeah, but people do that. Like, I mean, you know, I want to say estate sale people, like, keep those up front or something because who knows what's going on. But I can imagine, I mean, it's people's homes, right? So it's like everything and anyone's nightstands and everywhere else. Yeah. 
Put them away, people. If they come to ask to use your house as a location, that's a hot tip from Beth that and Monty, right? That is a hot right? tip for your homeowners. <laughs> Put your stuff in a suitcase and wheel it out with yeah, you. think about the poor set dressers. God, so, we have to scandalized. <laughs> how, how is it making movies with cell phones? I have no idea how that would be. Uh, making movies with cell phones has changed the business, I don't think, for the better. I mean, in to a certain degree, it is, of course, for the better, and it's all so moment to moment, and you can get your hands on stuff. But we've talked about this before. We don't look at things in the same way. You don't really understand scale from pictures online. And it's a desk job. You know, for so many, it's turned into a desk job instead of the hunt yeah, that used to be a lot of the fun is, is uh, you know, and another thing people don't understand about what it used to be being a locations person is it was before digital photography. And what I used to have to do would be to take actual photographs yeah. of, of what I'm trying to sell to the director as this is, I think, what you want. And then I would go to the one hour photo place, which was a great invention at the time. Where all location managers hung out. Exactly. And and we'd be waiting for our pictures. And then you'd get two sets of the pictures. You'd put one set in one folder and one set in another bunch of folders. Because you had to know what they're talking about. You'd have to number them and write on them. You know, now it's like you take the picture and you can email it to someone around the world. I remember... Once again, I'm on fire in the vanities. I used to get called in on all of the things the location guy, I think, was scared to do. And, and I had to take a, a helicopter, a crop dusting helicopter, and fly sideways down the beach from Montauk Point all the way, I don't know where we stopped, Lawrence, Long Island, or some crazy place, because they had to do a house on the beach. And I had this folder that was like the yellow pages used to be. It was so thick with all the houses. And I sent it to the director of Bonfire of the Vanities, who will remain nameless because I think he's a neighbor. And he didn't like any of them. And I said, well, it calls for a house on the beach in the Hamptons. These are the houses on the beach in the Hamptons. <laughs> You're like, make a pick, man. <laughs> Yeah, but they didn't. They did it in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true that a director and even actors, director of photography, you know, can all turn down both set decorators' work and location managers' work oh, yeah, yeah. And, and think that it's the easiest thing in the world to just oh, yeah. come up with another alternative. Yeah, remember that hallway? Remember yeah. the hallway with Tom Hanks dragging the poor little dog? Well, when the set, uh, no, excuse me, the production designer came to see what we had found in five hours, he was like, well, this will do. Do you have any more? Yeah. I was like, I only produce one miracle a day. I actually <laughs> said that to him. I only produce one miracle a day. But he was ready for, you know, does it have to be a light bulb? You know, that joke. Tell, Tell us that us. joke. We're all like, Monty, come on. Wait, wait a minute. You guys must know that. How many production <laughs> designers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, does it have to be a light bulb? Oh, my that God. Is perfect. <laughs> So that's what we have to deal with, you know. Yes. I only associate light bulbs with dishwashers because of Beth now, so. <laughs> All right, I have a confession. I have a confession. I'm going to tell everybody that my pantry got recalibrated. Oh, no. And the bulbs moved from the dishwasher into the pantry. Whoa, that's a big deal. It was a big deal because I found... 
all the bulbs and batteries that I've been hoarding. In the so, dishwasher. Yeah, in the dishwasher. <laughs> and now they're, now they're in full view in the pantry. I don't have any food. The dishwasher was genius, though. It was like a vault. Like, what's going to happen to it in there? Like, that was so smart. I love it. But the pantry now for selection, I'm sure, is much better. It is. I feel like the grandfather in Moonstruck. I, I, I feel so confused. I mean, <laughs> you can get it, Monty. You know what she does. It just sounds crazy to you. That's all. <laughs> I've been hoarding incandescent bulbs, Monty, because I can't stand LED lighting or any fluorescent lighting. And I have a small apartment and I chose to hoard them in my dishwasher. What do you do to wash your dishes? I wash my dishes. I find it very relaxing. Okay. Very thought-provoking. Here at Decorating the Set, we're all about using your space how you need to have it used, right? That's right. And if that's what your needs were, then those were your needs. You needed light bulb storage, and that little box looked perfect. Well, Beth, at some point you have to send me your address because I think I do have some incandescence downstairs. (gasps) That should start to be the trade. If you want to be a guest on the show, you have to send about That's six right. incandescent light bulbs <laughs> and an SASE so she can write you a thank you note. Right. Cross my problem with tungsten. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, well, Monty, I know you've done so much work outside of the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about your astrology work and some of the other amazing sure book writing, whatnot you're up to? When I was working in the film business, I had designed an astrology card game that tells the future. And I put it on index cards and I tested it out on the actors and the crew and, and, and the dancers and the chorus line. And actually one time, Michael Schultz, the director of The Last Dragon said, well, well, we'll roll camera when Monty's finished doing his readings for people. <laughs> <laughs> and Beth, you know how what a joy it is when the whole crew is looking oh. at Oh, I got one of those. Were you like, I'll put my crystal ball away when I'm good and ready? No. (laughs) No, it's mortifying. It's literally. Because you you have all these highly paid people looking at you like you're you're taking money out of their, and they're going to be late for dinner. How will they know what they're having for dinner if Monty doesn't tell them? Oh, listen, you can you can <laughs> never experience that kind of embarrassment when you're called out in front of almost 100 people on a crew. Tough yeah. audience. I would collect crowd. my tarot cards and go to my area. <laughs> well, and he had to pick a day when Suzanne DePass and Barry Gordy were there. Oh, I know, geez. right? But they were... They, he actually was was trying to be funny. I just felt very embarrassed because I knew that that's not the place you want to be in if you work on a crew. Is we're waiting on cue. We're waiting on you. You know, that's like the the worst. But I developed this card game and I sold it, and it came out with Penguin Books back in 1988, and that was when it was discovered that Ronald Reagan's wife, and we all know her name. Um, little Nancy, yeah. Little Nancy Reagan. She had used an astrologer. And, and so it came out with Penguin Books. I was able to sell it to Penguin Books. And it came out and it went from a 15,000 printing to a 45,000 printing. And it's still in print. I have a, I have about... 
12 what are called evergreen titles, which are titles that print every year. Though I am being ripped off terribly. Apparently, that's the whole thing now. Everybody makes everything, sells it on Etsy with PDFs of my books. But that's the story for another podcast. A, yeah. a, a true <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to bring Mike on. He's our, he's our contract lawyer uh, and, by day, so we'll he it, can handle uh, it. <laughs> a, a podcast on cleared artwork. Yeah, that's a big deal, right? Because my mm -hmm. friend's work was used in something. Yes. And you gave him advice. Thank you, Beth. That was very awesome. nice of you. See, it's still your creativity and your amazing mind that brought you from locations and problem solving. You know, I, I think it's also the way in which our two departments are so similar. It's yes. just really about pulling a rabbit out of your you-know-what and problem solving. <laughs> and, you know, you just got to say yes. And I think we used to do that a lot. You're in the same position that I'm in You're, right. because, because the shot will be set up for three months. And then when they get in there, the director says, I'd like to reverse the shot. Can we exactly? Can we make the wall look like this? So on, on the money pit, they had plugged, you know, it was an old house, right? So it has three windows in a row, uh, two rows on each side. So that's like uh, six. That's yeah, that's like 12 windows. They plugged the middle ones because they're going to destroy them on screen. And so Richard Benjamin, who is a wonderful guy, actually, and he gets there and this is the day the Hell's Angels are there and there's a parade of crazy people. And we had literally a hundred people there and he turns to me, right? <laughs> Always a joy. He says, there's not enough destruction. Can we just like rip the house apart? And what am I going to say? <laughs> you know, I said, sure, go right ahead. <laughs> And so they have this steam-powered jackhammer that starts ripping the siding off the side of the house. And the, the woman who owns the house comes around and shrieks at the top of her lungs. And by being a location scout and a location manager, I had her up on a ladder. I got a picture of her with a sawzall and, you know, helping and them. And all was right with the world. <laughs> I, said, I said to her, do you know that you've been insulating with dollar bills all these years? Look, there's no insulation in these walls. That got her right away. <laughs> What I thought spend. you were going to say you like threw a bag over her head and like the rainer off the shoot. Don't <laughs> no, no, do that to the writer when you're looking. Don't do that to the script writers. They hate to have the writers on set. Oh, Monty, you must have a favorite project that you worked on. Can you tell us a little bit about one of those? I, I think the most fun I ever had was working as Michael J. Fox's bodyguard because everybody loved him. It's not like anybody wanted. The only person I ever had to use martial arts on was him to keep him from nailing somebody because he's a tough little guy. And uh, I, I did like The Last Dragon. Penn and Teller was fun because Penn and Teller were fun. They hate everything spiritual. So they thought I was a total fraud. I know, but the whole crew loved you despite them. Well, they were nice to me. I mean, we, we got to be friends and I've seen them since. And, you know, they let me backstage at their shows. And, but they hate, I mean, the, the, that was one of the subplots of the movie was about how psychic surgeons from the Philippines are right. fake and, and spiritual healers are fake. And one of their closest friends was the amazing Randy, <laughs> who had a MacArthur Genius Grant to uh, expose fake psychics. And I told him about my karma cards, which at the time were still in development. And he said, what a great way to rip people off. And I said, well, I think you mean that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, well, I never. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Monty, where can people find you on the Internet and social media? 
Well, it's very nice of you to ask. It, it well, I have Monty at MontyFarber.com, Monty with an E, or The Enchanted World, all one word, so the E's run into each other, TheEnchantedWorld.com, or if you want to know about my wife, who's a lot more interesting than me, it's AmyZerner.com. And we'll be putting all of this on Instagram. when. Oh, thank you. You know, we're getting back into the film business. All my training is, is you know, I keep trying to get out, but they keep bringing me back, me and Al Pacino. And, yeah. And now we're doing a, um, a there's a, a crew out in California that says, is there a documentary about you? And we said, no. They said, well, we're, we want to make one. So it's a producer who's done a couple of horror movies for the Japanese. <laughs> you know, that's how the world works, right? Yeah. I did my first horror movie this summer. That's cool. Yeah. And apparently they make money, and which is good. And it's for Ammo Productions. So I wear the hat and everybody starts to want to frisk me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay because you're a bodyguard. It's true, but at the time, one of the reasons I got hired is they didn't want to hire somebody with a gun. Even though I I had grown up with guns, my father was a New York City police sergeant, my brother was also, and now he works for the U.S. Marshal Service. And then you're the bodyguard, Monty. Or did you go? To, did you go to Christmas dinner and be like, put that in y'all's faces? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing impressed those people. Uh, I had a feeling. <laughs> Not even the film business. Oh my God, no! And when when um, we did, we were asked to do a book on our relationship because our friends bought a publishing company, and they said, "Well, now you can do the, your relationship secrets." And we said, "Well, we don't have any." And they said, "Well, you better get some because we're doing your book." And we were very, very honest about our or my experiences with my crazy family. And someone said, "Aren't you afraid they're going to read it?" I said, "No, they won't." <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> Well, you know your peeps, Monty. That that's that's, uh, all, that's you got that going for you. And all your friends in the film business would read anything that you publish. Well, that's so sweet. You know that when I come back to a set, sometimes there's still a couple of people that I, I run into, and there'll be it's like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. You got out. You know, you, you, you <laughs> got true. out. Of the- Monty, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, head over to Monty's website, his Twitter, his Facebook, Instagram feeds for some amazing looks at their decades of work together, Beth and Monty. Thank you guys so much for talking to us about this today because I know people are going to have tons of questions, so please direct them to Beth and Monty, and I know they'll be happy to answer them for you. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Monty for speaking with us today and tripping down memory lane with me. You should look for all of his enchanted worlds of books and karma cards and see him on Instagram and on Facebook. Everything he and his wife, Amy Zerner, have done in all these years post his work in the film business because it's uh, really incredible and he's got a knack. He's got a gift. So you'll <laughs> all see that. I love your friends, Beth, because they're all so creative that they never just have like one thing that they do. They always have like all these different things that they just like dabble in. Uh, I think that creative spirit is like always looking for an outlet. We'll have to have them come back and do a reading for us. That would be yes, amazing. Absolutely. So Beth, I know you have some projects coming up. Can you give us a little tease of what's to come? Sure. I can tell you that it was just announced this week that the second season of 
Run the World is airing on Stars May 26th. So awesome. don't miss that. And the movie that I did with Katie Holmes directing, Rare Objects, which is a beautiful film, touching, beautiful film, is actually coming out on April 14th. And we'll be telling you about an event that we're having at Newell Props to honor the film and all all of the rare objects from Newell. That's amazing. What a cool event. I love that. Very, very cool. I watched the trailer and I, I got to tell you, I was like, this is like far more layered than I realized. Like just when you and I have been talking about it, I, w- I didn't think I had a full understanding of what mm-hmm. the movie was about. And then when I was watching the trailer, I was like, whoa, this is deep. Like there's a lot more going on it here. Is. Very exciting. so much. And I'll tell you just personally, one of my most favorite mottos is one foot in front of another. And I cannot even get through the trailer and see that without crying. It's it's oh, such no. a beautiful story and it stars Alan Cumming. Don't miss it. it it's, it's really a special film. That's amazing. Definitely you guys will watch for that. It's going to be on demand Friday, April 14th. And thank you guys all for listening to Decorating the Set. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to your home at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. It helps a lot in promotion of the show. Five stars, people. Thanks so much for listening. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to your home is an original Pod Clubhouse production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.